You got a problem, you don't know what to do Your dreams are strange, and you're seeing things too The world is full of mystery Life's more than you can see You can ask pomegranate You can ask pomegranate She's a priestess Hi, welcome to the podcast, Psychics and Mystics and those who love to delve into the world of mystery and magic. I'm wanting to talk today about um, despair. Despair. I want to talk to you about my experience with despair and what do we do from a magical standpoint when we run into times of trouble? What do we do when we find ourselves in the depths of despair? Which, you know... You know, you like to think it's hard to get there, but I don't know. I personally am a very optimistic, energetic person with a lot of things to do and a lot on my plate, and I have a really fun life, and really there's nothing to complain about. And yet I, my moods, uh, and I'm not very moody. I don't think I'm very moody. Kayleen, what's your opinion of moody? No, Kayleen says no. So, um, you know, you would think that that's a description of someone who doesn't get into despair much. And actually, I would say I go into despair regularly. I mean, weekly, sometimes daily, I can find moments of despair. And then I will, you know, uh, every couple months find myself down, down in the depths. And in my lifetime have been rock bottom, have had that experience of being rock bottom. And just feeling like there's no point, there's no value, there's no use, I... I am useless. My life is useless. The world, I, you know, and being a Leo, I have to then bring everybody else into it. The world is useless. The universe is stupid. (laughs) You know, I don't do things in a small way. So what do we do? And what's the value? Is there a value to it? And what do we do? And I think there probably is. And I think there are times, uh, there, there, are times when there probably isn't any value in despair that it's just a part of the human animals experience because of the hormones and our makeup and all the different things. And what did you eat that day? And do you have a flu? I mean, recently I had a flu and I decided to coin the, it was a stomach flu. And I decided to coin the term gut mood because I went into the worst despair and I'm like, my brain's like, geez, I don't know, everything seems perfectly fine. But my gut was being damaged by this virus. And it plummeted me into such a place of despair. But I could tell there wasn't anything for it to hang on to. And I really knew and my guts were just gurgling. It was a really long flu it took a month, month more than a month to get over. Um, and I knew it was my guts. It was the mood that came out of my gut. And you know, your gut is one of your brains, your gut is one of the ways that you hold memory. And I really feel like this, that flu is releasing some kind of memories from when I was in despair or when I was ancestrally in despair. And I, but I could tell it wasn't nothing to do with me. <laughs> and then I got better and the, and the feeling went away. So sometimes it's just despair for no good reason and not really super valuable. And other times it's real and it's based in something and it's true. And what we do in those cases is, first of all, can we just let ourselves accept this part of our nature that 
There are times when we feel profoundly grieved that are, there are times when we feel troubled. And, you know, I will say one of the main times that you might feel troubled is when you get everything you ever desired <laughs> and all of it, your dreams come true. And you're like, you get this sort of like, is that all there is? You know, <laughs> there's a song about that. This is that all there is. And, um, that's because you are expecting yourself to get a relationship with yourself that's better because you got the thing. So can we give it space? Can we allow there to be space for us to be in despair, for us to be heartbroken, for us, for whatever it is, the environment or, you know, Donald Trump's going to be president, knock on wood, I'm knocking. Um, or, you know, I'm happy. So therefore I'm sad. You know what I'm saying? Can we just give it room? And then what can we do after we've given it room? When can we say that this is a normal part of the human condition? There's nothing weird about me. I don't actually have to change this. I actually can just be in this. And so that next step is then surrender. It's just to be like, yeah, I'm going to stop fighting this. I'm going to stop trying to fix this. I'm going to stop trying to make it better and just allow myself room and surrender to that despair. It sounds crazy. Like what? Surrender to despair. Well, even if you are in despair because you have some kind of chemical thing that causes chronic depression, that surrender can get you to a place where you can understand the nature of it. Because lots of reasons, right? You can understand the nature of it enough to then know what needs to happen. Once we agree that we're allowed to be this way sometimes, once we agree that we can surrender to it, then we can do this magical act, which is say, help. If it doesn't, because I find if I just accept it and I surrender to it and I move, let the energy move through me of whatever that this is causing the despair and I can identify it then it moves away of its own course. And if it doesn't, then I got to ask for help. I got to go to somebody and say, help me, please help me. And that is the, that is the second magical act, or maybe it's the third magical act space, surrender, help. Now the fourth amongst our many magical acts, the fourth magical act, once you've asked for help is to identify what you have control over and what you don't have control over. Because one of the surest, fastest ways to live in despair is to think you should be in charge of something you have no power over. All right. Your question's up next. Hi, Pomegranate. My name is Rebecca, and I have a question about um, being hard on ourselves. Um, I'm wondering what the magical perspective is on that. Um, you've said in a previous podcast that um, I think that we can not only curse other people, but we can sometimes curse ourselves. And sometimes I feel like I'm doing that. Like I'll just get stuck in a really negative thought loop about myself. And despite the many techniques that I know of and practice to get out of it, sometimes it will just feel sticky and icky and I'll just feel like I'm stuck in it. Um, so I'm really curious what you have to say about that. Um, I've been seeing a therapist for quite some time and also have a good meditation and mindfulness practice and lots of other self-care practices, but sometimes it just seems like there are negative beliefs about myself that just crop up and are really persistent and will just kind of color my whole experience for 
a few hours or sometimes a few days or longer. So, yeah, just kind of wondering what the what the magical perspective is and how one might work with that or any other tools you might suggest. Okay, thank you so much. Bye-bye. I think that what you're perceiving is a curse, actually. And although it does seem like you're cursing yourself, and you probably actually are cursing yourself, um, I think we're actually dealing with uh, ancestral cursing. You're actually dealing with a combination of one of the things I call it is the ancestral wound, which is the way the ancestors lived with one another, created an environment and a culture of uh, either growth and healing or cursing and hatred, and usually some elegant, beautiful combination of the both of them. And that um, gets passed down through behavior and also gets passed down. Now they know through our DNA. Now we know that the, your grandmother's injury will show up in you, even if you have never experienced, like if your grandmother had a really bad time with a snake one day, the next thing, you know, your mother did not, but, and you did not, but you will have that injury in your DNA. This is something they've now scientifically proven. And um, that is the ancestral wounding. And the, along with that, you're probably also experiencing the ancestral cursing. And so we see that, you know, like I, I carry that in my body from my ancestor, the cursing that occurred to uh, my ancestors from the English. Uh, my ancestors are Irish. I'm Irish, actually, I'm a citizen, and my parents are Irish citizens. And so the English, you know, did a lot of basically genocide against the Irish and cast them as useless, stupid beings. And then that you can see that wounding, that ancestral cursing that um, is displayed inside my life and my parents' lives. And we can heal from those things. Here's the big good news. You can heal from these things. Now, what I don't know what the heck goes on with the humans. It, to me, this is baffling. Like, what are the humans doing? Why are they cursing the crap out of each other? Why are they wounding themselves? Why are they wounding their children? Because see, if you don't heal it in yourself, then you will wound your children with it. And they'll carry the ancestral wounding psychologically as well as in the DNA. And one thing we know about the DNA is through how you live, you can turn on and off uh, certain signals inside your body. Your, I think they're called alleles and you can turn them on and off. They've done studies with twins where one twin lived this one way and another twin lived another way, identical twins. And they came out with different outcomes because they were literally turning on and off different parts of their DNA to either encourage it to heal and grow or to injure and harm. So, you know, we can all do that. We can turn it on and off and there's techniques. Maybe you've tried them. I'll give you some. From a magical standpoint, if that's what a curse is, I mean, you got to listen to your mantra, right? <laughs> What's your mantra? And if your mantra is this mantra of self-hatred that you inherited from your mother, that she inherited from her mother and so on, then your the way ma mantras work is that you say a thing over and over again until it comes true. And it's more powerful if, if it's subliminal, if it's below your consciousness. And so a lot of these uh, negative thoughts and self-cursing occur uh, at lightning speed so that you barely can even notice it. Um, in modern parlance, we call that automatic negative thoughts. 
and the cognitive therapists are on that deal. They got it covered. They have techniques that work for deprogramming because we're talking about um, the thoughts you're having are occurring because our word word thoughts, thoughts that come with words, not thoughts that come with an emotional state or a sentimental state that comes from your heart and your gut. This is the word thoughts that comes from your brain. And your brain is sort of a big dumbass and just sort of believes anything anybody tells it <laughs> until you interrupt that and go, let's have some proof. Once the brain gets some proof for something else, uh, it can be reprogrammed. And that's what the cognitive therapists are doing. They're reprogramming brains. They're actually eliminating um, that cur cursing mechanism. And I don't know, it seems like there's a power in cursing that um, if I am have want power and control over a people, what I can do is insert a cursing idea into their brain so that they feel lesser and that they can then spread that to their children. And now the power, I don't have to control you anymore because you're controlling yourself with your own cursing thoughts. It's called lateral oppression. If you're going to oppress a people, you have to get them to oppress each other. Uh, you know, in the cults where women's genitalia, sorry, everybody, this is a bit much, but you know, there's cults where women's genitalia gets cut off. The people who do the cutting are the women. It's not the men, <laughs> the women, the mothers, the grandmothers go in and cut the genitalia off. The women oppress the women. The women take away the women's sexuality because we're, and that's not, that's not, um, misogyny, that's lateral oppression, you see, because I am a woman oppressing a woman, that's lateral oppression. See, it's real different. And I, so in other words, I'm carrying the torch for the oppressors, for the misogynists, if I oppress another woman. And, you know, certainly most of us, I don't know, I was raised that way and many of us are raised that way. So when I was a younger woman and used to, you know, shred the character of another person, usually another woman, I was really carrying that misogynistic torch as a lateral, in a lateral oppressed way. Um, so that's, that's a little more political than you were asking, but that's what happens. Um, I'm, I'm curious about the humans and what the whole thing is with the humans and why they need to go about the world oppressing the crap out of each other. And I think it's some kind of evolutionary leap we're trying to make. I think evolution happens very quickly. I don't think, I think Darwin's theory of evolution around the physical physicality of us can be very slow and over many generations, but I think there's a kind of evolution that can happen in our culture that can be very fast. I think right now we're in the middle of a uh, cultural evolution where we're, which will change us physically dramatically. As I spoke about earlier, your behaviors will change your DNA. Um, I think we're in the middle of a, of a cultural evolution where we're grappling with this frontal lobe. Stick with me here. We're grappling with this frontal lobe that we have. We, we really got it relatively recently. You know, we, we got this brain because we started cooking food. So we started cooking food. We didn't need these giant jaw muscles anymore. And as a result, our, our jaw muscles got much more relaxed and that allowed the frontal, the the frontal part of our lobes to have room to grow. And that growth created a, a being humans, which was, had lost the elegance of the natural way of living. And they had, we had lost our ability to just, you know, 
eat, kill, be killed, eat, kill, be killed, and just be like, that's fine, eating and killing. There's no moral code or ethical code around that. I'm hungry, you're a food, I'm gonna kill you and eat you. That's beautiful, right? There's an elegance to that. It has a, a um, elegant symmetry, it works beautifully. The, the whole planet agrees that that's just a fine way to be. But see, we grew these, we learned to cook. <laughs> and we grew these brains and now we've got these brains and out of the brains and the cooking and the, we grew culture and out of the culture we grew greed and greed is kind of a weird phenomenon of this frontal lobe and now we're trying to make an evolutionary leap to and you know the greed causes all the trouble right <laughs> the greed causes all the trouble because we want and we can't stop that want. And we need to make a leap now to use that frontal lobe and, and go into another phase of elegance, which doesn't, you know, which keeps our frontal lobe moving. So we can keep having this culture building. We can keep having this exploration of civilization. We can keep having this uh, deep, profound relationship that engages the mind with poetry and art and food and love and joy. And not and manage our greed right that's the evolutionary leap we're trying to do like if we could do it if we could just manage our greed <laughs> and we could just heal our greed and we could just keep the frontal lobe and fall into a way of elegance where we didn't need to oppress anybody to get our needs met or and we could also actually notice that our needs are met that's one thing evolutionary we have not noticed that our needs are met so we're, we're in overkill. So that's, sorry, I know that's a long way to getting around to your answer, but here we go. I'm going to actually answer your question. So yes, you are cursing yourself because you're l probably laterally oppressing yourself because you're probably from a history of oppressed people, which who's, who isn't right? Because <laughs> even the oppressors, like Here's the thing about jails. Yes, the people who are in the jail cell are in jail, but so are the people keeping everybody in the jail cell. They're also in the jail. They're getting up every day and going to jail. There's that's not great. That's not a great way to live, right? So this is this is not a this is not happy for anybody. So your thought processes are very old and are from your ancestors and probably may have nothing to do with you whatsoever or anything you've actually gone through. And so, so what we have to do about that is we have to flow our thoughts down and it's not great to just let those thoughts linger and then get a mantra to cover them up. That's why affirmations are pretty much crap. Like it's a nice idea, but they don't work. That's why, that's why, you know, the, the law of manifestation doesn't work. You know, this, the secrets law of manifestation doesn't work because what you're actually going to manifest is those thoughts underneath your affirmations. So if I'm sitting here going, I want to have a Ferrari, I want to have a Ferrari, I might get a Ferrari, but I will also get all of the crappy thoughts that are underneath the drive for a Ferrari. Cause why do I need a Ferrari? Like what's this need in me? So I'll get that fulfilled as well as the Ferrari, right? Um, and once I get the Ferrari, I'm not going to be any happier because uh, happiness doesn't come from Ferraris. Okay, so <laughs> so we have to get to the thoughts. So what cognitive therapists will do, and there's books on this, you can find, like, I mean, Dr. Phil talks about it. And uh, da David, David Daniel Amen talks about it. Is that right? Yes, he talks about it. And he's the brain guy. He book, writes books on brains. Um, autom automatic negative thoughts. You can look it up, but I'll give you a recipe now 
that has a little magic in it, which is what you have to do is you have to slow your thoughts down so you can really write it down because what you're dealing with is a programming of a belief and you can deprogram that belief. It takes about a month. What you do is slow the thought down. So if your thought is, I am a piece of shit, or I am an ugly tool, or I am stupid and deserve to die, or I'm evil and deserve to die, you would not believe how many people have that one. 10 years of counseling, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> well, it's more like 30 years of counseling, but 10 years of actively just like one-on-one counseling. Uh, a lot of people have that one. They believe they're evil. You just write it down. Write it down as clearly as you can. About a, it'll be about a paragraph long. And you got to slow your thoughts down to get it. And then you got to write it down. And then what you do is you take that god-awful, horrible thing that you spent your whole time trying to get the hell away from and prove isn't right by doing everything you've been doing that makes you crazy. You know, dressing perfectly or, you know, making sure you're worked out or you've lost weight or, you know, you get this special job or you get the Ferrari, whatever it is. You get that words and you write it down big on a piece of paper because we're digging it out and we want to see it and we don't want to run away from it anymore. We want to just see this thing, this dumbass thought that's in my head, that's programming me. And we want to say, okay, let me just see it. So if it's like, I am evil, there's nothing I can ever do to become a better person. Um, at my core, there's something disturbingly wrong with me. Let's say that's the thought, right? Um, put it on a piece of paper, write it big, hang it on the wall, look at it three, four, five, six times, put it in a card, put it in your pocket, look at it every day, three, four, five times, just look at it, just be like, really, this is what I'm operating under? <laughs> because as you do that, you'll, it'll let, allow you the space to separate yourself from it. You just need the space, you need to see it so you can see, not take it so personally, because we take it very personally. Of course we do. It's in our DNA. And it was probably programmed into us when we we're two, three years old, like, you know, even if your parents were lovely to you, if they hated themselves, their self-hatred was transferred to you. So you put that up. That's what you do. Then second, next step. After you've done that for about a week, you say to yourself, okay, um, I'm going to ask these four questions of this belief. So you have to say, I believe that I'm a piece of shit and I don't deserve to live. Okay. Then you ask these four questions. First question, is it true? Am I a piece of shit and don't deserve to live? Is this true? And, you know, I mean, I think almost all of us can get to, no, that's not true. <laughs> because, you know, I'm alive. So that's the first question. Second question, I'll give you the four questions. Second question is, is this, does this support belief? Does this belief support my goals? Does this belief support my goals? Does this belief, that third question, does this belief support my health? Does this belief support my health? I'm imagining you're writing things down. The fourth question, does this belief make me happy? Does this belief make me happy? Okay, those are the four questions. Now, when you answer them, you have to give evidence because your brain wants evidence. It's got an old belief. It's worked so far. Why should it change? It better have evidence, right? So it, give evidence for if, if yes, you deserve to live, then be like, I don't deserve to die because, and here's the evidence. Here's all the good things that I've done in my life. It does, does it make me happy? No, it doesn't make me happy. It makes me feel this and that and this. So you give evidence for each, each one. Do that. Now, now you want to run, rush out, don't you? And you want to not live without belief anymore. You want to change it. But I say to you, no, don't spend another week with it. Spend another week 
with that belief and with the, I don't, this is not true. This is not support my health. This is not support my goals. This is not make me happy. Spend another week with that. Don't change it yet. Every day, four or five, six times a day. After you've done that, your brain is going to start to really not take this belief personally. And that's the goal. And so that's when after two weeks, if you do it rigorously, you can turn it around and then you go, well, what is true? What, what belief is actually true? Because we do not want our brains programmed with beliefs that are not true, that are not supportive of our goals, that are not making us happy and that are not supporting our health. If it causes any one of those to be injured, we do not keep it. We got to get rid of it. Okay. Because it, it is literally a poison cursing you and it's cursing your children too and everybody in your environment. So when you're done it for two weeks, you turn it around and, and all you do is just take that statement and flip it. You then, so then you, so then I say, I deserve to live a beautiful life. I am a force for good in the world. Then I ask those four questions again. Is it true? Is it, the, is it health uh, good for me? And what's the other, whatever they all four are. You do those four questions again. Also, again, giving evidence. If you don't give evidence, your brain won't believe it. Give evidence. So each one is going to have a paragraph written about it. And that is going to, and then you take that new one and you make sure you, that new belief, and you make sure that when you're, you, especially when you're going to a circumstance where you would normally feel the old one, like maybe you normally feel that way when you're going to a new circumstance you're not used to, or maybe like when I did this, I did it around recovering my health. And so it was whenever I worked out, I had to get it out. And it was like, let me look at this. Cause that was the time when it was most difficult. And you, every day, six, seven times a day, you do it. And in 21 days from the time you turn that uh, belief around, you will be repro reprogrammed and your life will change. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And your DNA will start to change into a different thing. It'll start turning things on and off and health will come to you and you'll feel better. It's a miracle and it works. So if you haven't done the automatic thoughts one yet, do that. It's really useful, really useful. And go to your therapist and say, do you know about this cognitive therapy technique? And if you, if that you've already done it and it's not working, then you need to come call me again with a new question and tell me more. And I will give you a different answer because there are some circumstances when the problem is not your thought, the problem is something else. Okay. So, and if, if, if that doesn't work, that means the problem's not in your brain. Yay. We've identified where it's not. Okay. Um, so, and at that point, that new belief becomes your mantra and it's not hiding anything and it will really work. And it's really quite a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. Have you heard about the Portland School of Astrology? The Portland School of Astrology, evolving consciousness through the study of the cosmic weather and celestial patterning, not only examining the, the external cosmos, but our internal cosmos as well. Portland School of Astrology offers classes almost every day of the week, open to the public, classes that are suitable for the novice, beginners, intermediate, and even advanced students. Portland School of Astrology also offers fun community events, conferences, recorded lectures, and books, and our year-long first and second year programs. First year astro empowerment begins in fall and has a focus on teaching astro through an anti-oppression framework. Oh, I love the sound of that. The Portland School of Astrology has teachers with a wealth of knowledge in specific topics such as movement, art, medical astrology, vocational astrology, herbalism, 
ancient techniques and translation, queer astrology, and more. Learn more about Portland School of Astrology at www.portlandastrology.org. www.portlandastrology.org. Five two zero two 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 ninety nine twenty two ninety nine twenty two. Hi, Pomegranate. This is Patty in San Diego. I just had a wonderful session with your good friend, Anne, who I heard about on your last podcast, and I just wanted to say thank you to you both so much. I really enjoyed your podcast and my visit with Anne. Uh, my question for you is I was wondering if you could tell us more about goddess. I um, am just learning about goddesses, and mine in particular that I've met recently, Seradwen. Um, so if you could just tell us a little more about goddess and how we can use her um, or that resource in our life. Hope you are well. Thank you so much, Tom. Bye. Yeah, the goddess. Um, <laughs> it reminds me of a saying we used to get from the Blues Brothers. I'm on a mission from the goddess. <laughs> That's how I live my life. I feel like I'm on a mission from the goddess. So, um, in the simplest, the simplest concept of the goddess, the easiest way to access that deity is to realize that you're living on her, that in fact, you're living, breathing part of who she is. The earth is the goddess. I mean, she gave birth to you. She gave birth to every single thing that you are experiencing in this moment comes from the abundance of that beautiful ball of water and fire and earth and air, because that's what she's made of. I mean, she's an amazing water being that is spinning and spiraling through the universe, floating around, doing this beautiful dance with all the other planets, flying through the air in this spiral dance, um, shooting through the galaxies and spiraling around in this amazing beauty. It all is inside of you. It's inside of every part of you and it's outside of every part of you. So everything you can see, touch, hear, feel in this moment is the goddess. So it's not hard to find her. She's not an abstract idea or a spiritual idea that is hard, that you can sort of feel like some, you know, like they say, white bearded white guy in the sky. Although I believe in the white bearded white guys in the sky too. But <laughs> to access goddess energy, all you have to do is breathe. Like literally all you have to do is breathe. When you breathe, you're breathing in the inspiration of the goddess. You're literally her inspiration. She had this like, I think I shall give birth to creatures and you're one of them. I mean, yay. So when we talk about goddesses deity and from a human standpoint, we're, you know, everything, every energy in the universe has uh, overwhelming power. Every energy in the universe exists. Um, and much of it is cosmic and the cosmic ones are overwhelming and they're hard to, they're hard to access. And so the humans need story. Humans absolutely need story. We understand the world through story. That's a part of that frontal brain, that cortex, that, that frontal brain, part of your brain, the frontal lobes, where we can, you have words and story and ideas. And one of the beauties of story is we can have access to cosmic forces in a way that is so moving and profound because we allow ourselves to have stories. So one of the easy stories that we can have is this idea of like, I have a parent, so can I see these cosmic forces as parent? 
Um, so the goddess is the cosmic force that we call the goddess because we can understand the idea of the nurturing parent. So we give it that name and it works for us. It's great. It really works. And that's who she is. And so how do you use that? How do you access that? And how does that, how can that help us grow? How can it help us make this evolutionary leap? Um, because the humans will take pretty much any damn thing and use it to oppress others. Like we're real good at that. We're like, I shall invent a God. And I mean, if you think about Jesus, who was an avatar, you know, the guy was like, he came in, he was a being of light. He's like, Hey dudes, uh, let's all just like be at peace with one another. Shall we? Can we all just like really like shine our heart at each other and move through love, which is what the avatars do. Right these beings of light come down and they're like, Hey man, let's all just be in love. So we took that humans (laughs) and we turned it into. And so for years, the Gnostic Christians, that's what they did. They were, if you remember the Gnostic Christian, Christian symbol for Jesus, it's a, it's a human with their hands open and their heart chakra open spreading the love. Right. Well, we took that within a matter of a couple of hundred years of this guy coming in and we turned it into, um, what you see before you in Christianity, like we turn it into the crusades. <laughs> we turn it into a tool of oppression. Humans, like we can do it. No, I believe in us humans. We can make the evolutionary leap to the elegant way of being, which is having a brain and loving people and not needing to oppress each other. Okay. Back to the answer to your question of what is the goddess? So, so the goddess is a way to, experience a relationship with yourself at its core. It's a way of identifying yourself as beauty. It's a way of healing yourself from your ancestral wounding. And one of the, one of the things that is the core, one of the core damages that we go through when we're born um, into contemporary times is we get this relationship with our higher power damage. We get this relationship with divinity damaged because we are uh, given a story about us that is we are not as good we are diminished and so therefore we can't be divine and this is where that greed i was talking about earlier comes from that greed comes from that broken relationship with the divine and uh one of the goals of most people who are operating on a spiritual level right now is they're attempting to restore the relationship of our us with divine so if i was to have a whole relationship with myself that was in direct relationship with the divine in a way that was healed, I would not actually be greedy because I would, that's what we're greedy for, right? We're greedy for a return to the sublime and the goddess is an invitation. The goddess is an invitation to return to the sublime. So I work with this idea of relationships and influences as a magical, um, as what magic is. I mean, magic is essentially relationships, my relationship to other things, cosmic, mundane, whatever, that's my magic. And the first relationship, and there's lots, it's complex and there's a lot of relationships and it's one day I'll do a podcast on the seven. I should do one. I should do a whole podcast just on the seven, uh, degrees of separation and the seven spheres of influence. I will do that. Kayleen, remind me. Kayleen is writing this down as we speak, (laughs) but I'll just talk about the first sphere of influence. And the number one sphere of influence is you. And so imagine you're surrounded by a circle. Oh, guess what you are? It's called your auric egg. 
Imagine you're in your auric egg, your first sphere of influence. Nobody gets in there. Nobody, 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 but you and your higher power, the thing that is bigger than you. When I say higher power, I mean the thing that is bigger than you. Guess what? You are not the biggest thing around, nor should you try to be. You will only make yourself into a crazy lunatic and have to go to 12-step programs like I do. So <laughs> remember, you are not the biggest thing around. I think this is in evidence if you simply look around and see maybe a tree or the planet. So you and your higher power in that first sphere of influence. And so for me, that word is, the higher power word is goddess. I love the idea of goddess works for me. The language, the story of goddess is the easiest way for me to access divine. So I choose that word. You pick whatever word you want, people out there in the world. Um, but I pick the goddess. And so for me, I, I have a relationship with something bigger than me, which is the goddess. And my whole spiritual practice at its core is about surrendering to that relationship and allowing myself to open up to that divinity. And as I open up to that divinity, I know myself to be divine, that I was born not out of the oppressor's description of me as wrong, you know, because I'm queer or a woman or fat or any of those things or Irish, right? These are all things I've heard in my life about what's wrong with me that and then some, but actually, I'm actually divine. I was born by a divine being who gave birth to me because she wanted to experience herself. And so she created me a mirror to her own divinity. I am a mirror to the goddess's divinity. I hold her, I hold the shape so she can see herself. I hold divinity in myself. I am divine. And to the degree to which that can resonate in me, I can actually hold that inside my soul as true is the degree to which my, I have been healed. And the more I can hold that, the more I can live in an elegant world and that, and all things then emanate out of that truth, you know, some days more than others. Like there are days when I'm just like, what is going on with the hair? Right. Because I'm still a vain human woman. Right. But Generally speaking, uh, the more I heal it, and guess what? That gets passed down to the gener to the descendants. So then the descendants uh, uh, receive divinity through being around me in my healing of my own divine self. See, and the descendants are not the people I give birth to, by the way, because I didn't give birth to no people. The descendants are everyone that I that is inside my influence. Okay, so anybody who's inside my influence, who then is then. It, is others are inside their influence. That is the descendants. See, so we all have descendants and we all belong to the descendants just as we do belong to the ancestors. So when we work with the goddess, we're working with understanding and surrendering to our own divinity. I mean, you, you are divine. If you look at a tree, you can see the divinity in it. We don't question a flower's divinity you it, it, even in all of its stages you know even a, a stage of like seedling to rotting compost that's the divine cycle that's the divinity of the goddess so you are just as divine as all the creatures of the world even you badly behaved people <laughs> you just the more badly behaved we are the less we've the less we remember our divinity that's the only difference so even the worst of the worst of the humans is still divine. We don't actually get to decide who's divine and who's not. That's when we start getting into trouble, people. So 
when you want to work with the goddess, what you going to do is you're going to find one that works for you the best. Like who is your teacher? Who is the one that tells you about yourself? Who is the one that guides you? And, and they, and the goddess, the, the cosmic goddess, which is bigger than the earth, which is bigger than the, the cosmos itself is the infinite, no unknown, unreachable, unnameable force of cosmos. The big one, the big goddess is really happy to come to you in much more specific ways because they, you know, they understand the, the puniness of your little mind, human, your little human, your puny little mind. That's me with my puny little mind. I know I'm little. I'm little. I can just look at the tree and go, there's a hundred foot tree. And then there's, you know, six foot me and well, all right, five foot nine, not even six foot. Uh, I'm little, right? So they are really happy to come in very specific ways. And so you and the cool thing about being a witch uh, is you get to talk to as many different goddesses as you want. And they uh, will talk to you <laughs> and they'll come and hang out with you for a couple of days or a year and then go off and a new one will come. Uh, so, you know, you're working with Caridwin, who's the mother energy and she's got the, you know, the sow of wisdom and she's got the cauldron of rebirth and she's like got who's her son Gwydion is her son somebody's her son and she you now she's the same somehow the salmon and the hazelnut are involved there there's all that stuff it's really good she's celtic she's um uh, she's well she's groovy she's she's caridwin she's the mother goddess right i work with bridget uh who is the saint of ireland but she's also the goddess of ireland she's britain is named after her she is the the goddess of the middle path she and so she talks to me because she loves artists and wordsmith people and she's the healer and i love her and she's my girl and so you can talk to anybody you want you can talk to kali ma she's she'll kick your ass real good <laughs> creator destroyer right she you know you know i love the mother as creator destroyer because she she's like my mother used to say i brought you into this world and i'll take you out and the goddess that is going to take me out thank you goddess for taking me out when it's time so your conversations with her is about learning about yourself about surrendering to your own divinity about surrendering to your own beauty and really learning specifically about what she wants to teach you. And she comes to you in different guises so you can understand her. And um, so one of the best ways to do that is to work with building altars to a goddess. And so pick one and build an altar. Currently I'm working with uh, the uh, goddess. This person is a multi-gendered goddess. God, that's why I'm saying it that weird stuttery way. Um, they're queer gendered. Um, Ningish Zida. And I'm really fascinated by this one that came to me because I'm like, ooh, cool, like totally multi-gendered, yay, wonderful experience of the goddess for me. Um, because I'm learning about that multi-gendered experience of not being any gender. Uh, and I find that fascinating and beautiful and so grateful that the God has come to me. So what I'm gonna invite you to do is go into a bookstore, go into this goddessy section and pull out a book and let the book fall open and see who comes and talks to you. Uh, because that's a way to get in touch. And then we just start to allow that entryway. We create an altar because it creates a gateway. It's an invitation. And, you know, it should be beautiful because when you send out an invitation, you want it to be beautiful. 
And it's an invitation to that energy. It's a gateway that gates the energy of that goddess to come into your life and bring to you what you need to know, whatever healing you need, whatever abundance you lack, whatever divinity you need to know about yourself. And as you look at that altar, just know you're actually looking at yourself. You're actually repairing the relationship between you and your higher power, which is the first sphere of influence which is the most important one. The more we heal that one, the more the rest of our influences are healed. I'm on a mission from the goddess. Have you heard about the Portland School of Astrology? The Portland School of Astrology, evolving consciousness through the study of the cosmic weather and celestial patterning, not only examining the the external cosmos, but our internal cosmos as well. Portland School of Astrology offers classes almost every day of the week, open to the public, classes that are suitable for the novice, beginners, intermediate, and even advanced students. Portland School of Astrology also offers fun community events, conferences, recorded lectures, and books, and our year-long first and second year programs. First year astro empowerment begins in fall and has a focus on teaching astro through an anti-oppression framework. Oh, I love the sound of that. The Portland School of Astrology has teachers with a wealth of knowledge in specific topics such as movement, art, medical astrology, vocational astrology, herbalism, ancient techniques and translation, queer astrology, and more. Learn more about Portland School of Astrology at www.portlandastrology.org. www.portlandastrology.org. Five two zero two 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 ninety nine twenty two ninety nine twenty two. Hey Tom, I have a question about the power of pink. Um, I feel like in conversation about chakra system and rainbows and prisms and what I've learned about like the the colors of fairy realms. I haven't really heard that much about pink. Pink seems to be often left out of a lot of those conversations. And so I just had a client who had experienced a really traumatic loss, and she was telling me about how the color fuchsia was really powerful for her right now, and if I knew anything about that. And I found myself kind of at a loss. Um, And so I thought of you and thought maybe you could enlighten us about the power of pink. Um, Thanks so much. Bye. I love color so much uh, from a magical place. Uh, for me, the power of color is profoundly magical. And there's a scene in Best of Show where they have this singing, singing group who are a bunch of witches who worship color. And I'm like, oh my God, they have so nailed me to the wall with this. It's hilarious. And obviously, maybe someone knows somebody who's in <laughs> color and magic. Um, I am a painter and my paintings are very vivid. You can go to Pomegranate Doyle art and find my paintings online in the website um, and see what they look like. Uh, color is everything to me. So when I encounter color, I'm really encountering magic and every color has a particular flavor that holds a certain energy for me. And um, Pink in the chakra system is actually inside of the heart chakra. So it's often shown um, the heart chakra is green, but inside the green is pink. And um, 
when we're, it's good question for this show because the heart, the green is your heart, is your compassion for others, your ability to empathize with yourself and others. I mean, often when we don't, we're cursing ourselves and we're not carrying self-love, the green is quite diminished. Um, and so when the heart chakra is really healthy, it's very green and it's vibrant and you have a lot of self-love and you have a relationship with others that is loving and um, you don't really accept environments that aren't loving. You're like, oh, unloving environment, move away, right? What's when that green heart is really working? That's self-love and love for others, love for other beings on the planet, all other beings. The, the pink comes in, uh, the heart chakra is divine love. And it's so what we've been talking about the whole show. It's the pink is actually representative of the divine love. It's the goddess, you know, I mean, when you go get yourself a nice piece of rosy quartz, you're really buying a, a rock that shines the goddess's love into you. And that, that, um, it's, some people call it Jesus. Some people call it the goddess. It's like that unending, always there, never leaves you in your times of despair. That's what will eventually come to you. If you can surrender to it, that's what will pick your ass up and get you through it. It's that divine love and it is symbolized by pink and fuchsia, I would think is like her, just like you're saying, she went through a trauma as like divinity going, all right, you know, you went through a terrible loss. I'm here for you. I'm supporting you. I've got your back. I'm moving through you. One of the things that happens when you go through a profound loss, especially if it's death, um, is the door to the other side opens. Um, I've been through a whole lot of people dying in my life, very young. And, um, the, when someone dies, the door to the other side opens and that door, it's like when you open, you know, a door and the wind comes through and the, the wind comes through. And if you're standing at the door of death, grieving the loss of someone and you're calling to them and you're reaching for them and you're trying to get them back. Cause you know, that's a phase of grief. Um, sometimes that door will just blow your ass right through. <laughs> like it'll literally, you'll just be like, I've seen it happen. Like that's why they say, you know, death comes in threes. It's because, um, you're standing at the door grieving the loss of someone. And the next thing you know, that wind and that open door, just you go flying through. And as priestesses of death, we have to pay attention to that. We have to pay attention to the people who are going through the grief. And we have to pay attention to when the door needs to close. When that door to the other side needs to close so that it doesn't, you know, whip a bunch of other family members through. Um, uh, the same is true, by the way, of birth. Uh, when you give birth, ladies who are out there pregnant and having given birth, at when the child has that doorway that is literally your body inside your body opens, the child comes through, it stays open from the other side. The other side comes through with that child and that door stays open for three months, three months. So when your baby is three months old, you got to have a ceremony to close that gate because it's going to stay open because it's feeding that child energy. Just like you got to not clamp the umbilical cord five seconds after or, Oh God, help me or cut it. Lordy, Lordy, what the hell is that about? You got to let that, that umbilical cord still feed the child for a couple of hours afterwards. You got to let the energy from the other side feed the child, establish them, um, here, allow their full personality to come through. Cause you know, that's what happens in the first three months is they become more and more human. And, and then at three months, you got to close that gate. This is just an aside. This has nothing to do with the color pink. Well, maybe it is. Cause that energy seems quite pink to me. 
you got to close that gate or that is very harmful for the mama. Um, and so you got to have a little ceremony to close it because you don't want to be a gate for the energy of that child. And this is, I think sometimes why children get enmeshed with their mother a little bit is because they didn't close that gate. And so you're still really, really tied to your child. And that's not your job is to be super tied to your child. You're supposed to be individuals. That's the point of being a human is to be an individual. So you got to close that gate. But on the other side, when someone dies, uh, that gate needs to stay open for a while as you grieve and you pour your grief through that gate. But then at a certain point, that's, that's somewhere between six months and a year, that gate has to be closed. And in the meantime, as you're standing there at the edge, you know, I think of it as standing at the edge between life and death, um, as the person goes, and I'll tell you, I'll just give you a little trick when they disappear, when their energy disappears. So someone dies. Okay, here's what happens. Oh, I'm doing a workshop on this. I'll probably record it and post it. I'm doing a workshop on this topic. Um, when someone dies, you feel them, feel them, feel them, feel them, feel them. And then all of a sudden you don't feel them anymore. That's when you close the gate. You don't feel them anymore. They disappear because they have gotten on so far in their journey that they're no longer present in the world. And that's good. You want them to go like that. Then they'll be gone for a while. And then at some point in the next year or so, they'll show up again and they'll be, have gone through the gate. They'll have gone through their whole, you know, deprogramming process you go through on the other side. And then they're like, they come back. And when they come back, they're like, okay, here I am ready to be an ancestor. And when they become ancestors, they're very helpful. We need ancestors. They help us. So, but that process, someone dies, you're grieving, grieving, grieving. You can feel them like you can feel them more present than you ever felt them really when they first die. And then all of a sudden, boom, they're gone. You can't feel them. You're not dreaming about them. You can't experience them anymore. They're gone. That's because they're crossing over and you don't want to get your sticky fingers in their business. Okay. That's when you got to close that gate. But in the meantime, the energies will come in and they'll try to support you so that you don't go early, right? You won't cross over yourself early in your grief. And that is what that fuchsia color is around her. That fuchsia color that's around her is keeping her steady and reminding her to stay here and reminding her to stay a human. And that's that divine love, giving her the support she needs to go through the change she's going through. Um, you know, because you want to, you got, I think we get what, seven or nine chances to die throughout our lives. Like you get the gate of death comes to you many times and throughout your life, they'll be like, Hey, so do you want to die now? And then you go, no, I think I'll stay. <laughs> okay. What about now? You get, you know, bunches of opportunities to make the exit, right? So you want to make sure that you don't go too early. Cause like the, like the Buddhists say, it's really freaking hard to get born. It's really hard to get manifest. So once you get it, don't leave too early. You know what I'm saying? Because even if you do leave too early and then you manage to get yourself manifest again, you got to go through puberty again. Nobody wants to go through that. Just stay and do your karma. <laughs> you know, stay as long as you, as you can. And then when you're ready to go, off you go. Um, so that back to the woman in the future. So that divine love is really holding her here and supporting her as she goes through the terrible, awful, horrific, what the hell, why did I become a human being process of learning to become somebody else? Because why is it so difficult when someone dies? You know, we're all spiritual people. We're like, yeah, man, it's all good. You're, you know, you're going home. 
have fun. See you when I get there. Like what? They're fine. They're going home, right? They're having a great time. Everybody prefers to be, once you die, everybody is so relieved to be dead. They're so excited about having been dead. Of course, when you go back there, everybody's like, you're a rock star. You manifested yourself. Yay. So they're fine. So why is it so painful and horrible for us? I mean, it's really one of the worst things that can happen. Of course, it happens all the time, which is somebody you love dies. I mean, who wants to go through that? Nobody wants to go through that. Why is it so painful? And it's painful because that person, because who's really dying is you. And how, what are you doing? What are you, how are you dying? Well, that person knew you. They, good, bad, or ugly, they knew you. They understood you. They held you and they let, they held a part of who you were. And they, and that was the only person that was holding that part of you. So like when your mother dies, it's really hard because they hold a really giant part of you, whether that you like them or not, they hold a massive part of you. And that part of you, when they die, dies. So I'm living that person, my mother, same when my mother died, she held this whole picture of me, the whole experience of me, this whole understanding of me, this, this memory of me, this entire huge parts of my personality were held by her. I was a person who had a mother. And when my mother died, that went. And so now I died, but I'm still living. And now I have to unlearn the old person because she's dead and learn to be a person who is not being held by Carmel. Carmel held me and now she's not. And who she holds me as as a dead person is really different than who she held me as as a living person. So my grieving process in large part is I don't know who I am anymore and I don't know how to become who I am. And active grieving is letting that old one go and learning to be the new one. That's the act of grieving. And that is why hoarders hoard because they're trying to hold on to who they were and they're not allowing themselves to become the new person. The majority of people who hoard are people who've gone through a terrible, horrible, painful loss. So that's what the process of death is. And that's what that color is doing. So when you get a lot of pink and a lot of fuchsia going on, you're really in the lap of divine love. And it's probably because you really freaking need it. Usually it's not because everything's fine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Usually you'll get some other color for that. Right. And, and so that's what the color pink is about. Oh, the color pink. I love the color pink. I'm pink. I'm pink with little brown rusty spots. That's my skin color. That's my race. <laughs> There's no such thing as race. Wouldn't it be funny if there was a race pink with little spots? That's so silly. Pink, the goddess is love. Well, thanks for listening. And I'd like to thank Kayleen Beaujolais for her most excellent producing of this episode and John Duell for maintaining the beautiful website where you can download this podcast. Tell your friends, go to my uh, Facebook page and ask me questions there and give me a ring. And don't forget, you're on a mission from the goddess. You can ask pomegranate, you can ask pomegranate, she 